Okay, well, we're going to continue on with our series. We've only got a couple more weeks left. My name is Brad Davis. I'm one of the ministers here at uh, Denton North Church. And uh, we're in the middle of a series on building belief and the right reading of Scripture. And uh, it seems like um, it's taken us all this time to finally begin getting serious about the practice of reading Scripture, which is fine. It's not something that you can just... Uh, turn the switch on one day and get serious about. Uh, but it does seem like there's been more people kind of reading and paying attention and doing some different things. Um, probably we'll take an opportunity in a moment to give you a chance to share with the larger group uh, things that you got out of this week's um, passage that we read in James. Actually, I don't have my, my Bible with me. Uh, you see it right there? It's right behind you. I do this all the time. I just forget it. It's right there in that bag. You see that little bag? It's a beautiful little red Bible with Chelsea's name on it. Um, and that is my go-to Bible at church. I guess I could use my phone, but uh, always the man. Always the man. We've got such a great team here in the mornings. It's really fun to have 10 or 20 people helping set up and do things. I remember the days where there's only two or three of us, and so... Uh, one of our uh, most consistent team members is uh, Ben Pochet, who's a good guy, right? So, behind the scenes, good stuff. All right, so hopefully you read James this, uh, this week, uh, James 1, 16 through 27, but I'm going to actually add 2 through 8 in there as well, uh, because I think it fits really well with what I'm uh, hoping to do uh, today. So we're going to move into the last sort of part of this series and that last part deals with a couple things. Number one, sort of the most modern time period in um, biblical uh, criticism, in the sort of modern methods of literary criticism, stuff that kind of came out of uh, the Enlightenment and modernist period that we've been talking about. And so uh, that's going to be the last four series that we have, okay? And uh, so with that... We're not going to actually go into the kind of deeper, more difficult, challenging, academic uh, things that you could get out of the literary criticism movement, simply because we're probably going to do a class over that over the summer. And so if you're really interested in contemporary biblical methods of literary criticism and things like that, which already some of you are checking out, which means that you're probably not that interested in it, then you could definitely be a part of that class. Remember that over the summer, we combine our groups. So we have college students and adults in groups together. And so we'll be offering four groups over the summer taught by various leaders, and there'll be the kind of full range of different kinds of small groups and topics. So be looking forward to that starting midway through May. All right, and we'll again have more information for you. But one of those classes will probably be something on contemporary uh, biblical uh, interpretation and analysis. Okay, so if you're super interested in that, great. We're not going to spend a lot of time with that for the next four weeks. Instead, I really wanted to focus these last four weeks on kind of a devotional reading of Scripture and an ability to really come away from reading Scripture with some really practical things. All right. And we're doing a devotional class in the morning that I led last week, Leslie led this next week, we'll skip next week, and then we'll do the last week of April and the first week of May, and hopefully that's been refreshing as well. And I, uh, the reason we did this study class and devotional class is not to convince you that these two things are separate. 
I think the mature biblical reader is able to intertwine both studying and devotional reading kind of in one, because that's really those big two words we talked about at the very beginning of this series, exegesis, research, studying scripture, so that we can know what it originally meant, what the authors are really trying to guide us to believe, and then the hermeneutic stuff, which is about applying it to our own lives. And really, that's kind of what we're going for when we talk about studying devotional. But I think that it's important as you mature in your biblical faith and in your reading of scripture that you're able to do both of those. Not necessarily in one sitting, but throughout your life. Uh, The way I do it it, um, uh, specifically is I read devotionally kind of throughout the week, and then I take uh, maybe once a month or something, a book or a passage, and then really sort of study it, okay? And that's helpful just to kind of do that consistently. But I think what most of us need in here is just some sort of commitment to a regular reading and more than just reading understanding of scripture. And so if you really haven't done that, if this entire series has not convinced you that you need to read scripture regularly, then maybe talk to someone, um, maybe, I don't know, pray that that, uh, the spirit will lead you into that kind of conviction. I don't know, because if you're not reading the scripture regularly, it's gonna be very difficult to do life as a Christian, okay? Uh, you've got this amazing opportunity for how to, to really hear from God and be empowered by His Spirit. And if you're not reading regularly, uh, getting information from books and from people and from sermons is n- not even scratching the surface on what it means to really live as a disciple of Christ. And so if you're not committed to that, get committed to it. Figure out how to. If you need creative and innovative ways, take one of our classes. Go back and listen to some of the sermons. Talk to one of us. There's plenty of people in the church who... Uh, Uh, who really have made study and uh, application of Scripture a very vital and important part of their their faith. And remember, the entire goal of all of this is so that we build up a belief structure that that we can have a, a founding belief in what it is we're actually reading. We're asking ourselves what we're believing. One of the things that came out of the Reformation movement, which is somewhat okay and somewhat unfortunate, is something called systematic theology, uh, and really systematic denominational theology, which was basically everybody kind of answers every question that they could possibly answer from the scripture. And in some ways, what we've done is unpacked all of that, rejected all of it, and we're trying to kind of get back to some more systematic, not necessarily theology, but basic baseline for what it is we believe about Christianity. And too much of it uh, we get from other sources. And we've got to go back to the primary source, okay? I'll say that over and over again, and I know this is sort of like a lecture-type thing, uh, scolding you, but it's not. It's just uh, hopefully as we start talking about devotional reading, you'll be even more encouraged to do some of this. So uh, the title of today is Literary Criticism in the Bible, Do I Have to Be Smart to Read Well? Literary criticism is just a vague term for about the last 150 years of biblical interpretation, where we began to apply methods that we learned during the Enlightenment, a Renaissance era, to go back and and try to criticize, and criticize is not necessarily a negative connotation, but maybe just analyze literary texts. And I mean, there are, some of you are majoring basically in this, and so you could attest to just how many methods, how many ideas, how many ways the scripture has been dissected, tried to be uh, understood from a variety of vantage points. I mean, it's just really in-depth. So there's no way that we're going to be able to talk about any of that at, at, uh, in any kind of valuable way. The thing to recognize is just there's a million different opinions on it. And those opinions more or less reflect two ages that I talk about a lot in here that people are so tired of hearing, I understand, 
the modernism where we try to prove everything rationally, okay, everything, there's, there's sort of rational methods for looking at the scripture, which is what I'll talk about a lot today, and then the postmodern way of looking at things, which is really ultimately from individual perspectives, individual stories, and that kind of thing. And so literary criticism came out of this heart of trying to prove things rationally in the scripture. And originally, this just was, you know, the Greek way of kind of thinking about things uh, brought back into the Reformation so that we could say, hey, we've got to have a very academic way of looking at the scripture. If we're going to attest to its truthfulness to our culture, we've got to look at it rationally. And so most of our Ivy League schools today, some of their first and most you know, prestigious programs started off as divinity schools, right? Now, those divinity programs have changed drastically, if they even have them anymore, uh, but those schools started off with an intention of looking at the Scripture rationally and trying to use methods, scientific methods, more or less, to prove certain things. Well, that became uh, both a success and a failure in that the, the, uh, you know, we learned a lot about original sources and authors and all these different things. But unfortunately, as we took the scripture into academia, uh, it became very hard to prove certain things that, that may not have been uh, written to be proven in the way that we think about them. And so when you're trying to prove things out of text from these academic methods, what you end up with is sort of a few number of texts, particularly if you're looking at what's called the historical critical uh, uh, methodology, that you can prove historically and without a doubt actually happened. And if you can't prove it historically, then it's probably not a text that we ought to look at. Well, number one, we didn't have a lot of great archaeological evidence at the beginning of the 20th century, and so that was pretty much just meant that we took almost all of Scripture and didn't do anything with it. And today, we at least have some of that archaeological evidence, but that kind of liberal, and I'm going to use that word very liberally, uh, viewpoint on Scripture that was, if you can't prove anything historically, then it's probably not worth reading. These authors probably had their own agenda, and were making up stuff, and exaggerating, or pulling from other sources, or blah, 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 and whatever else. Well, what that ultimately did, in the same way that the Reformation period, the clergy had taken the ability to understand the Bible out of the lay people or the regular people's uh, hands, in our day and age, we have another problem, and that's that many of us feel like we can't read the Scripture unless we have a scholarly understanding of it, that we need some sort of pastor with a seminary degree to even begin to unearth the truths of the Scripture. Well, I don't have a seminary degree. I have other degrees. Never taken, uh, well, I've taken Bible classes, a few of them, at the seminary or graduate level, but only like three or four. And those were like audit classes, so I didn't even have to do the work if I didn't want to. Um, Many of us have listened to classes that were graduate level classes, but you are not in a church with a seminary trained preacher. Now, am I saying that's a good thing? No, not necessarily. But am I saying that our preachers and pastors have to have seminary degrees to teach you what's in the scripture? I think that's about the same idea as having to have a clergy person teach you uh, about the Bible and you can't have uh, any possession of it on your own. So academics have taken that out of uh, our hands in some ways and made us all think, well, there's nothing in Scripture that we could really know or understand on our own. And, uh, and that's, that's just absolutely a cultural and uh, religious lie. And so in that, we just have to kind of deal with it and know it. That you don't have to be smart, okay, to read the Scripture, and particularly not just smart overall, but smart in biblical methods or understandings, all right? There's a way to to read it 
and to really understand the message that's behind it. But one of the real challenges of that movement in our uh, religious heritage is that even if we understand the scripture academically, we fail to apply it in any way that's really meaningful to our lives. Because when we've so dissected it and analyzed it rationally, it takes a lot of the bite of scripture away. Because these authors weren't meaning or give or, or intending to give us rational viewpoints on the world that could be no one could mess around with. They were t- totally true for all time, for all things, and not in every word they spoke. So much of the major themes and principles of Scripture have been lost to trying to prove things, individual issues or individual things, from a rational or historical perspective. And so we've got to kind of regain that back, okay? And one of the major ways that we regain that back is we read the scripture fresh and anew and recognize this stuff was written by common people, to common people, and the fact that academics have dissected it so much really only shows just how elitist many of them are in the first place. How much they think that because they have some superior knowledge, most of which was taught to them by a society with its own agenda somehow means that they have a better insight into Scripture. Guys, there was a movement during Jesus' time period, or really right after during Paul's time period, called the Gnostics, who really did the exact same thing. They had a special knowledge which was that came out of their superior intelligence and their rational methods, and Paul, throughout the letters, rejects this type of thinking. And almost every letter uh, that he wrote he appeals to people not to buy into these Gnostic arguments, these really rational-sounding arguments, and to go back to Scripture themselves to understand these things. Things that God always intended for the common and everyday person, no matter what their status, position, to, to learn to understand and obey. And that is one of the most important beliefs that you have to have to unlock, okay, a desire to read the Scripture is you've got to decide and you've got to believe, no matter how little that belief is, that you are fully capable on your own with the Spirit's guidance and certainly the community's guidance and the church's tradition, although I'm using that in a really, really broad way, that you can understand what it is God is speaking to you through Scripture. And not only that, but that it will absolutely change everything about your life. Okay? And uh, so that may seem like a duh thing, but I'm trying to start really, really basic here because the whole idea is building belief. So if you don't believe that you have the ability to hear God speak through Scripture without having a commentary or a preacher speaking it to you or a guide to help you understand it, you've missed the major message of the Scripture, which is God is speaking to all of his people and speaking in a language they understand and will change their life on the one-on-one level. Jesus' ministry, one-on-one, which is how he did it, not in large speaking groups and things like that, is carried on through the Holy Spirit as we read God's words to us. And that's just a a kind of fundamental belief we've all got to just believe and try to uh, figure it out. And I think in your life, that's going to be reflected by how much you interact with the Scripture. Okay? whether you actually believe that or not. And, uh, and that's incredibly uh, important. So, okay, we're reading James. Here we go. I, I have a short sermon planned, but who knows? You know, it, it, whatever happens, happens. Uh, James 1, and I'm going to read uh, 1, 2 through 8, and then 
well, really 1, 2 through 8, and then 16 through 18, but then I think all I gave you guys was 19 through 27, right? Uh, stop me, none of you ever do this, but just stop me if, as you were thinking this week, you have an idea or a thought or a question about this scripture, and uh, I know, I guess that's just kind of weird, but I feel like if you will take uh, an extra shot of boldness, uh, maybe this would be helpful if you can ask some similar questions that people are asking, but here we go. James, book of James. James has got uh, some really interesting history behind it. We don't know exactly who wrote it, if it's Jesus' brother or another James or the apostles. It's, it's kind of sort of unknown. Uh, also, James seems to be kind of like um, downplayed or de-emphasized in Luther's writings. He actually called James the straw book of the New Testament. <laughs> now, that was early on in his career. Um, but he does never seem to retract that statement. And I think probably Luther's biggest problem with James was that it doesn't seem to overtly speak of Jesus or the Gospels. And it seems to be a almost pharisaical book like the Proverbs on how to just do a bunch of good things and you'll get good things back. Hopefully, you'll see that that's not true in the passage that we read today. But uh, James requires a little bit of unpacking. Number one, James uses almost word-for-word statements from Jesus' mouth. So while he doesn't actually, you know, talk just a ton about Jesus in the same way that, uh, you know, other books might not talk directly about God, he's using the same phrases and same ideas and just re-speaking it. So in some ways, uh, plagiarism, yeah, that's a good point. Uh, He's a plagiarist. No, he's taking ideas that are much better put in Jesus' words and expressing those himself. And he also is focusing a lot uh, on the idea that because you have faith doesn't just mean that you've, you know, you're a passive person. This is going to be played out in the life of a Christian. And thankfully so, because otherwise we wouldn't be freed from all of the things that, uh, that ensnare and entangle us. So, James, one, two, through eight, here we go. Consider it pure joy, my brothers, when you face trials of many kinds. Okay, well, that alone, without reading anything else, should bite a little bit. Don't think any of us sit and count our blessings for all of the trials we face, all right? We're not really, that's just not human, okay? (laughs) Um... But hopefully, you know, he's going to explain exactly what this means. Because you know that the testing of your faith develops perseverance. Perseverance must finish its work so that you may be mature and complete, not lacking anything. If any of you lacks wisdom, he should ask God who gives generously to all without finding fault. And it will be given to him. But when he asks, he must believe and not doubt. Because he who doubts is like a wave of the sea blown and tossed by the wind. That man should not think he will receive anything from the Lord. He is double-minded and unstable in all he does. 16, don't be deceived, my dear brothers. Every good and perfect gift is from above. Coming down from the Father of the heavenly lights, who does not change like shifting shadows. He chose to give us birth through the word of truth, that we may, uh, may be a kind of first fruits of all he created. All right, I'll stop there, and then we'll read the second part of this passage in a moment. All right, so what the heck is going on here? Uh, This is a a very popular beginning passage of James. I cut out some of the passages because it seems unrelated. Sometimes James 
is, you know, again, proverbial in his writing. There are passages that you're just like, how does that apply? I think it could apply, but we're not going to go for it. What questions do you have immediately from uh, hearing that? You don't have to answer that. I just want you to think about that for a moment. What questions do you have in your mind after you hear exactly what it is that you've just uh, heard, or if you're reading it, I don't think we have it up. One of my first questions is, why without doubt? That seems kind of harsh. I got to ask for wisdom only and be completely for sure I'm going to get it? Like, what's up with that? If I'm reading this from just a, maybe a literary critical point of view, I might be thinking, well, you know what? This doesn't make any sense. This is self-fulfilling prophecy. You're supposed to ask for wisdom, expect you're going to get it, and then in hindsight, you just say, oh, that thing I got was the wisdom I got from God. What is he only speaking to like cult members here? People who are like 100% convinced of what it is they're asking for? That doesn't seem fair. That certainly doesn't seem to apply to any of us. And if I have any doubt in my mind that, you know, this wisdom is going to ultimately come from God, I'm like disabled from asking from it uh, or asking for it. That's at least my question here is, what, how do I even know? What does it even mean to ask without any doubt? And as I pondered that this week and kind of thought about it, I thought about just how off-putting this scripture could really be. It could be one of those scriptures that seems to talk about particularly a small group of people who seem to never doubt God, never doubt their interactions with him, and in that sense seems to have nothing to do with me because I've got plenty of doubt, and certainly uh, as I'm even asking questions, I think most of us, if we're honest, have plenty of doubt. So who does this speak to? I mean, you know, Thinking about this in a very critical way, I'm thinking, oh, well, James, maybe he was a Pharisee. He, you know, he had this confidence in being uh, a Jewish person, so his confidence just made him think that God was sort of like, you know, always needed to be trusted and never could be doubted and that kind of Pharisaical way of looking at things. And certainly people have re read that into this passage and made it almost like not apply to anybody. I don't think that's, though, uh, what he means. So what do you think he means to ask for wisdom without doubt. Now let's back up a little bit, because as we're thinking through this passage, we've got to remember where this wisdom thing comes from in the first place. Number one, he starts this whole thing off with consider it a good thing that you're facing trials, because your faith is being tested. Now be careful, and we'll have to separate this from the conversation in the middle here where he talks about temptation. Two different things, right? Trials being things that just come along the way that make us question things, that make us wonder if God's really there. Temptation being something God does not do, okay, does not tempt us uh, in order to, you know, test us or whatever else. Uh, some people would, would misquote the Corinthians passage by saying, uh, you know, God doesn't tempt us beyond, uh, you know, what we can handle. Not what that says, okay? Not test us beyond what we can handle. Very different. James is saying God doesn't tempt you. God doesn't put things in front of you and say, hey, look at this. This would be good, bad for you. Can you handle not doing it? <laughs> this doesn't do that. Just, that's not him. Evil doesn't come from God uh, in that sense. That's not how things work. James says it's when our desire uh, to um, you know, act on these evil things entice us into this path, we start going down there. But he does allow trials to happen to us. And trials is a broad word that can mean anything and everything. Many of us are dealing with significant trials as we sit in this room. Just trials, stuff that's just hard, stuff that's testing our faith. Now, again, testing our faith, meaning what? God's looking down on you thinking, is this dude going to be good? 
Is he going to be bad? Oh, man, totally took bets, and uh, he's going to be bad. What was that one movie that uh, everyone would always take bets? Rat Race. Remember that? Y'all, have y'all seen Rat Race? Are y'all too young for that? Oh, my gosh. That's like one of the be- Mr. Bean in that movie is tip-top shape, all right? It's like the pinnacle of his career right there in Rat Race, you know? He's got narcolepsy. Oh, my gosh, that's such a wonderful movie. Rat Race is basically like these guys are going in, you know, they're trying to, actually, I can't even remember the plot of the movie, um, find something that will reward them, but there are all these different people, and what's happening is there's a bunch of these rich guys just watching them, and they constantly make bets to see who's going to do what and how far they will go and what they will do. God is not like that. He is not testing us to sort of get a kick out of, oh, 50-50 chance there, you know? Whoa, you know, betting with, uh, you know, the angels. Well, you know, nope, that's, he didn't do it. I told you so. It's not how it works. He says, James says very clearly here, he's testing us so that our faith will produce perseverance so that we will be mature and complete. Now, how does he do that? Does he introduce terrible things that go on in our life? My dad, to this day, says that uh, uh, when I broke my knee in ninth grade, was it ninth grade, tenth grade, that uh, he thinks that was God pulling me out of a bad group of people that I shouldn't be with. I don't think that's true, Dad. Okay, well, (laughs) God was like, break his leg, and he won't be able to hang out with cool people. Uh... But it did help. <laughs> In retrospect, it's always interesting to see how those things work. Now, will God use situations that just naturally occur and happen and, and whatever for our good and the no- normal trials that just come our way? I think that's probably a better way to interpret that. Um, but that God uses those trials so that our faith can be tested, so that it can produce perseverance, so that we can be mature and not lack anything. Now, that's where the wisdom part comes in is when we do lack wisdom, he says. And of course, wisdom and trials go together hand in hand. Um, when you think back to kind of the most famous passage in the scripture of wisdom, you think about Solomon, you know, being offered all of these things and he chooses, he doesn't really choose wisdom. And I don't, I'm not for sure I'd use that word the same. His, his, the exact phrase was an understanding of heart. To be able to judiciously help his nation and make really smart decisions. Now, does wisdom fall into that? Sure. And remember that first story uh, is that like lady with the baby, and he's like, oh yeah, okay, I'll just split her and split it in two. You know, I mean, that one lady's like, okay, what, what was she thinking, right? Like, what, do you think there'd be a little bit of, of thought there? What was she gonna do with half of a baby? Like, uh, I don't know, that scripture has always messed me up a little bit. Um, and how that's like a, sh- a sign of wisdom, it's <laughs> just like a basic, you know. Okay, well, anyway. Um, so we think about that. Well, obviously, that's a, these are trying times. When you've got a mother, two mothers fighting over one child, this is a trial. This is an issue. We want wisdom. We want to know what to do. We want an understanding of how to kind of figure out in between two decisions, which often uh, or, or unclear decisions or multiple decisions, and it's hard for us to figure out what's going on. Okay, so he says simply, wisdom is not something, something that we earn or achieve over time, Uh, although sometimes those things can be true, but it's something that we simply ask, and God, who's a God, a gift giver, gives to us that wisdom. Now, why this way of doing things? Because we tend to think of wisdom as something, well, you know, you you have a lot of experience, 
you get older, you get wisdom. Many of us know old people who don't seem to have wisdom uh, or young people who seem to be wise beyond their years. So just simply growing into wisdom through lots of experience uh, is certainly possible in kind of a you know, uh, human maturity type way. But God himself is saying he will, or James is saying that God will give us wisdom if we simply ask for it. Well, so why that? Why the asking part? Well, here's, I think, where this scripture uh, really kind of has its bite, at least for me. And that is that when he's talking about not doubting, he's making very clear that if you ask God for wisdom, this is going to be a relational thing. The wisdom you're going to have to recognize is coming from God so you can see that he's a good gift giver and gives it to you without finding fault, is what the passage says. Meaning that you may not have deserved that wisdom at all, but you're still going to get it because God is good. But if you fail to recognize that that wisdom is from God, all you've ended up getting was some good advice and no real mature relationship with God himself. It's like someone giving you a random gift and you not really knowing who it came from, but you're like, I guess that's a good gift, but you've not developed a relationship with a random gift that's just been given to you. You simply appreciate the gift and move on. But it's those gifts, I think, at least to me, that have been given to me, either weird, strange gifts that only me and a few friends kind of know and understand. Brandon and I would always exchange dollar store figurines um, and put them in each other's, uh, in places, in e- a lot of us do kind of weird stuff like that, I, I think, right? No? You don't have a relationship like that with someone? Wow. Not that close. Uh, <laughs> with anybody, you're an island. Um, but the gift was, you know, it, it was fine, but it was that relationship that was built through that gift. One of my favorite gifts I've ever gotten, I'm just going to throw this in there because I love it. Uh, when I was 18, so 10, 15, 20, some time ago, um, there was a scavenger hunt, uh, and Focus put this on. It was really Brandon's idea, and we had to go all around the city. It was like for two hours, and we had to find all these clues, and it finally ended up where me and another person, Leah, who I know many of you don't know, were, ended up at Best Buy, and she got a, a digital camera, which at the time was super cool, right? This is well before phones and cameras. Uh, and it was like a, I don't know, I won't even tell you how many megapixels. I don't even know if they were doing megapixels back then. Um, and I got a refrigerator, like a little small refrigerator, right? Now, the gift is actually amazing because I still have that refrigerator almost 20 years later, and it's in my shop. But the cool part of that gift was the journey and knowing that my friends had spent all of this time doing it. Now, was the gift functional and great and wonderful? Absolutely. I think this is partly what James is saying here. Wisdom you can find all over the place. Some of it will be good. Some of it won't be good. But in the relationship that we have specifically with God where he grants us wisdom as a gift without us working for it or doing anything about it, in our situations where we have trials and triumphs, brings us closer to relationship with him. And this is really, really important of an idea because you can find wisdom in a lot of places. But if you can't trace that wisdom back to God, then that wisdom, it could be decent wisdom, Number one, it probably won't be that powerful in your life. And number two, you won't really be able to say that you have a a relationship with God that's building on him giving you this gift of wisdom in these challenging situations. And many of us, we do. We have 
a, a problem or a trial, and we try to go to God to get wisdom, and we don't really believe it's going to come, or we kind of hope half-heartedly it's going to come, and then we just end up don't feeling like we got much wisdom from God. Well, why? Do you think he's withholding that? Because we're doubting terrible people. No, because what's the point, okay? Either the wisdom we got from God, but just didn't even recognize it came from him, or two, we got no wisdom from God because we found wisdom plenty of other places. Either way, it ultimately doesn't connect us back with God. And so why this passage seems really strange in terms of, uh, well, you know, why can't you doubt? Well, if you doubt, you automatically take out the opportunity for God to be the one that grants that wisdom. But if you believe that God grants wisdom, then you'll begin to recognize the wisdom that he's giving in your life. Uh, during trials, in those times, it's really, really difficult. Now, I'm going to explain this a little bit more because this seems a little bit vague, and I understand that, so that's okay. I talked in our devotional class about uh, three different things, and I really like these, even though these were pretty challenging to understand um, in our devotional class, but I'm going to go with it, okay? As I was reading through the Psalms and trying to prepare for the devotional class, I recognized that uh, in our first devotional class was on Uh, hearing God. This is very, very, we want to hear God. All of us really want to hear God, constantly hearing God. And yet, you ask people, when's the last time you've heard from God? And it's very challenging to think through, well, why haven't I heard from God? Or, you know, if we get vague enough, we can ask a question like, what good things are going on? And then maybe we can try to kind of make a few connections between good things and hearing from God. Why is it that we don't hear from God more? And as I read through uh, the Psalms and uh, looked back at David, I feel like there's kind of three ways of hearing from God that David identifies. The, the first one, the one that I think most of us want the most, is that profound hearing. Profound, not necessarily the message itself, but the way that the, the message comes across. God just speaks something directly into our heart and into our mind, and we're amazed, and we're stunned, and we're floored, and it's no question that this thing came from God. Most of us, if we're honest, want that hearing from God. Why do we want it? Well, maybe at our worst, we don't want to have to do the hard work that comes from actually building a relationship with God. We'd rather him just to boom his voice loudly, although that never really works very well in the Old Testament because everybody runs in fear uh, and doesn't hear the message and immediately wants someone else to go interact with God, okay? But we want that, maybe because we're lazy, maybe at best because we just want something significant to show us, to help us with our anxiety and with our doubts. But I'll remind you again of Jesus' miracles and how often Jesus' miracles didn't sway people's thinking on him and how often he downplayed his own miracles, okay, like in the passage in John 15 with Thomas, saying, if you don't believe in who I am and the things that I've been doing, the miracles aren't going to help you much. Remember the wicked generation, the Pharisees constantly asking for miracles and all those other things. We want that profound hearing from God problem is I fully believe that we can completely talk away those moments where God has spoken into our lives. A little bit of time, a little bit of skepticism, a little bit of people questioning us, those profound times of hearing from God can quickly go away uh, and be nothing but some voice that at one time in our silly childish, uh, you know, understanding of the world we thought was God. The second type is purposeful hearing from God, and purposeful hearing is It's sort of like we have a trial, we have a temptation. It's really maybe a better way with situational, but I had to go with all the P's. I don't know, I'll just help remember it. It's preacher stuff. Um, Situational, we we have something directly going on and we want to hear God speak on it so that we have some direction to go in, so that we have some confidence in our action. This is a lot of what David is crying out with over and over again in the Psalms. 
I'm being attacked. I'm being pursued. You feel far off and distant from me. I need you. This is my purpose. This is why I want to hear from you. Please speak now so that I can hear from you. And most of us, I think if we're honest, this is what we define as hearing from God. It's sort of like in the middle of the profound and what I'm going to mention in a moment, the practical hearing from God. We want that situational, purposeful, something's going on, God speak to me, make this clear for me so that I can act, so that I can move, so that I can do something different than what I'm doing. I need to feel your presence here. But one of the things I really noticed as I was reading back through the Psalms is as David is constantly wanting this and asking for it, something he says in almost all of his Psalms is, God, I rest on your word, I know what you say is true, he goes back to this practical hearing from God that, that exists in all that he's read and all that he's experienced up to this point. It's the day-to-day practical listening to God that informs and builds all that other stuff that he's asking for. In Psalm 13, which is one of the ones we read, this is one of those psalms where God, he's, David is doing what uh, he does with some frequency with God, even though he's a man after God's own heart, which makes it confusing, uh, asking God, why have you disappeared? Where have you gone? Why haven't I heard from you? I'm in the middle of this huge trial and temptation, and you're just absent. And yet almost every one of these psalms end with, but I will rest on my love for your law, the, you know, all of these other more practical ways he hears from God. And so what I wanted to do in the devotional class is remind people the best method for hearing is God is starting with the practical commitment to listening to what he's already said. Because that's hearing from God. And, and if we don't do that and expect this sort of situational, purposeful, you know, in the moment hearing from God, we're doing actually exactly what James is telling us not to do. We want wisdom, but we're doubting whether it's going to come. Why do we doubt it's going to come? Because we haven't uh, practiced the discipline of regularly hearing from God. It's not that he's not doing it. It's that we're not hearing anything. Nothing is coming our way. And I think this is just a, a radical change in the way we think about hearing from God. We are probably one of the most desperate Uh, generations in a while to hear God's voice and yet never pay attention to all of the audio that we already have. And and when we do read it, we don't read it as God speaking to us. We read it as sort of words on a page that are confusing, don't make sense, uh, and that we have to kind of maybe talk about to really figure out. And so I think one of the things that leaves me with is as you're reading devotionally and as you're reading throughout the weeks, you really have to ask the question, Uh, really is what is God saying to me in this passage, but what wisdom is God giving me in this passage? You've got to connect back in your devotional times the things that you're reading in Scripture to God speaking those very words into your mind and into your heart. Because if you don't, you're missing the whole point of what the authors are doing. They're speaking words of God into you and into your mind and into your heart. And I think if we rediscover some of that, we'll be at least a little bit more apt to do that. Now, again, practical hearing is never near as fun or exciting as the purposeful or profound hearing. And so we run the risk of, as we read through Scripture, completely reading things, letting them get stuck in our mind, and totally forgetting that this is the Spirit speaking to us. And so we've got to be careful, and I think one of the ways that we get around that is by starting with stuff that's obviously God's Word. Uh, uh, well, God's words. Jesus, right? 
Maybe the prophets, although that stuff can get pretty depressing and dangerous uh, to read through. Um, so, Grant, you had a question. Yeah. Right. It is the opposite way. Yeah, it is. <laughs> well, I, you know, th- here's the reason I think that is. Uh, is because, well, one, I think the, the sentence structure actually makes me think that, but just forget about the sentence structure for a moment. It's sandwiched between God gives generously, okay? And then on the end of that is, you know, don't be deceived, every good and perfect gift comes from him. Uh, he chose to give us birth through the word of truth that would be kind of first fruits of all he created. Um, so, yeah, I don't know. I, I, th- I think to me, the natural reading of that uh, is that he's not going to find fault with us. He's giving out of his generosity. Uh, and, uh, yeah. And I think if you go further, here's the negative way of looking at that. When he really is talking about doubt here, he's talking about the kind of doubt where someone is unstable going back and forth over and over again, there's no real firm foundation or, or kind of um, place that this faith is coming out of. It's just sort of like, a sh- I think about someone like that, double-mindedness uh, is like, sometimes I'll kind of go to God and see if that works out. Sometimes I'll go somewhere else and see if that works out. Now, there's a part of us that, you know, this is just us naturally, but I think when he says unstable and all he does, I mean, he's really talking about someone who has this mentality that God is sort of one more out, uh, outlet to see if he can find wisdom from there. Uh, one more way that, you know, well, I'm, I'm here this day, I'm there this day, whatever else. It's, it's kind of a consistency and a commitment thing. And the whole idea of this passage is talking about growing in your perseverance and in your ability to deal with trials so that you'll, can be, you'll be complete. So that's my, uh, my best attempt at explaining that quickly. Hopefully it was helpful, I don't know. What, is wisdom, uh, what wisdom is God giving me in this passage is the, uh, the question on the end of that one. All right, I'm going to run through this next one really quickly, 16 uh, or 18 through 27. This is the passage you guys read this week, 19, sorry. My dear, my dear brothers, take note of this. Everyone should be quick to listen, slow to speak, and slow to become angry. For man's anger does not bring about the righteous life that God desires. Therefore, get rid of all moral filth and the evil that is so prevalent and humbly accept the word planted in you, which can save you. I want to back up for a moment because I think this quick to listen, slow to speak is probably more true uh, of our um, devotional time with God even than it is with our interactions with each other. Uh, Quick to listen, slow to speak. We do a lot of speaking in devotional time, praying, our minds running all over the place. But a real part of hearing from God is being able to just listen to God. And I don't mean silence, okay? I'm not, that does not, listening is not always silence. You can be an active listener, okay? You can be pondering, you can be writing the statements. You know, one of the things I tried to teach in the devotional class was really listening is, is pretty much letting others' words guide your thinking. It's not trying to put someone else's words in your own uh, uh, language. It's, it's listening to the words that are coming out of their mouths, Right? Those of us who are interpretive listeners love to interpret people's uh, uh, conversations in our own way of thinking. I do this all the time with people. And part of it's because I'm impatient and I don't want them to finish a sentence. I'm just ready to tell them what they already think. That is an interpretive listener. Or an interpretive listener, and this is just a personality type to some degree, or a communication style. Uh, You interpret people, what are they really saying? You know know how to read between the lines, right? Yeah. um, Truly listening is letting others' words guide your thinking. 
And we've got to do that with biblical reading and devotional. Taking phrases and letting those words guide our thinking. We're not reinterpreting them. We're not changing their meaning. We're not applying them to some specific instance where we need it. We're first letting the words guide our thinking. Okay? Uh, We naturally do this when someone says something mean about us. Okay? We just naturally do it. It's painful for us to let words that aren't our words, that are obviously aren't our words, because they're, you know, saying something maybe really mean to us, but we got to learn how to do this in a really positive way. Um, Slow to become angry, for man's anger does not bring about the righteous life. I'll talk about that in a moment. Do not merely listen to the word and so deceive yourselves. Do what it says. Anyone who listens to the word but does not do what it says is like a man who looks at his face in a mirror and after looking at himself goes away and immediately forgets what he looks like. This has always been such a funny illustration to me. Number one, because it's not uh, immediately apparent how that has anything to do with listening to the word, but also just because it's sort of funny, and also because this is true. We all do this. We all forget how we look, don't we? I mean, especially I've never quite understood the left to the right thing, or right to the left thing, right? And when you look in a mirror, you think of yourself as one way, and then you get a picture, or you get like from another angle, and it's like someone's looking at your face left to right, and you're from right to left. Is that right? What am I asking? (laughs) It's a lot like hearing your voice, you know, recorded, versus hearing your voice coming out. You're like, who's that? Who's that guy? <laughs> you, have you never dealt with this, the mirror thing, where you're like, you, you see yourself, I see myself in one orientation, but then I see a picture, or I see maybe from a weird angle, and I'm like, wait, that's how I look? I look like that? I thought I looked like the opposite orientation, like the, from the other way to the other. All right, Whatever. Just making a point here that we do commonly look at ourselves in the mirror because we forgot what we look like. Um, or at least, yeah, whatever. So, but the man who looks intently, so it goes back to that perseverance part, into the perfect law that gives freedom, which that is just a weird statement um, because of so many things having to do with the law versus the gospel, whatever, but continues to do this, not forgetting what he has heard. So you see this very like, Gosh, it's got to be over and over and over again. Three times he reiterates this. Intently continues not forgetting and doing it. He will be blessed in what he does. If anyone considers himself religious and yet does not keep a tight rein on his tongue, he deceives himself and his religion is worthless. Hmm. Yeah. Religion that God our Father accepts as pure and faultless is this, to look after orphans and widows in their distress and to keep oneself from being polluted by the world. So, the second point here is we have to obey the word of truth and be free. It's pretty simple. The first point I don't think I even said was ask for wisdom without doubt. Uh, oops. Obey the word of truth and, and be free. Now, I can see this from an alternative view, all right? And this is the whole idea of, well, okay, it's what Jesus says in John 7. In order to really know that I'm telling you the truth, you've got to go out and do it. Well, I mean, come on. That sounds like a shyster. You know, well, you've got to come and do it first and then see if you're really going to like it. It's like, you know, someone trying to convince me to do a pyramid scheme, you know? Just come be a part of it, man. You'll totally love it. It'll be awesome. I mean, trust me. I mean, I know it sounds like a pyramid scheme. It's not. Just do it. It's totally not. Austin kind of has a funny story about that. Um, you'll have to ask him about uh, Daniel from this weekend. Anyway, um, not that he got in a pyramid scheme. That's not what I'm suggesting. So, I can see this kind of alternate view. Now, of course, liberal, literal uh, critics have always liked the orphans and widows things. That always works really well, because they're like, yeah, definitely orphans and widows. So they just ignore the rest of the passage about temptation and all this other stuff, and they're like, orphans and widows, that sounds good. 
polluted by the world. What does that even mean? Uh, we'll just go with the orphans and widows part. So, the big question that comes to me from this, not only because this is all very confusing, uh, but is free from what? Like, what, what are we talking about? What, what, free from what? And I think if you go back to this example or this, this illustration here of not merely listening but doing what it says, uh, the real kind of uh, bite of this passage is uh, we get freed from our delusions about ourselves and about the world around us. And um, I think that's what he's talking about when he talks here about doing stuff, you know, versus just knowing stuff. And we've talked about this enough, but I love, uh, I talk about TV all the time. It's so weird because I don't watch TV much, but um, I like 48 Hours, and I think I'm better than you all because I watch 48 Hours, which is a realistic crime show, and you guys all watch CSI and Russian spy shows and things like that, which are in no way realistic. But to be fair and to be pretend to be humble for a moment, um, even though I'm watching these very realistic homicide shows, I still have no idea what it's like to experience being a homicide detective. I've read a ton about it, and I think I probably know a lot more than you do about it. But at the end of the day, I still have not experienced it any more than you have. And so, while I am impressive in my knowledge, perhaps, probably not to you, but to myself, <laughs> I still haven't experienced any of it. I'm deluded into thinking when I watch that show that somehow I'm a part of finding these criminals. <laughs> All right? I'm a part of this dangerous world, you know? And I know that's funny to you, but it, don't lie. Some of you have done this just as much and probably way worse than I have in your delusions of the shows that you're a part of. This is why we love TV, is we can delude ourselves into thinking we're like in this world. This is a, like a character in this. We just, we love that kind of fantasy way of thinking about things. And, uh, and, and you know, James is saying here, listen, if you're hearing the word and that's it, because, you know, we talked about hearing first, and that's important. We do got to hear, and that's, that's good stuff. But not doing anything about what you're hearing you're deluding yourselves into thinking that you're doing something. And along with that delusion comes absolutely no freedom. Because the freedom comes in the doing it. And that the freedom is the proving it too. Because if I'm in a pyramid scheme, I better be making a lot of money for it to be worth it. Okay? Uh, that's just at the end of the day. As long as, if you're not making money, it doesn't matter. As long as I'm making money, we're good to go. But here, the proof is in the freedom, the freedom from delusion, and more importantly in this passage, which comes after that, in my mind, is freedom from all these destructive desires we have, uh, which is what James is really going to talk about for the next part of the book. Destructive desires, the desire to, to be more uh, you know, um, famous or have more status than someone else, which is what he talks about a lot in James. The uh, you know, destructive desire to try to um, uh, gain wealth so that we can be completely secure and not have any fear and anxiety. Uh, the destructive desire to try to be constantly better and competing with everybody around us. And all of these destructive desires. Okay? It allows us to live with purpose and integrity. Obeying the word of truth should always amount to both giving us purpose, both in our day to day, or week to week, or month to month, and, and along with that, because these both have to go together, 
integrity. You can have purpose all day long and no integrity, and you will not be freed from your destructive desires. You can have integrity and no purpose, and that integrity then has no purpose. Because integrity alone without purpose is just you being a really nice guy, but no real purpose. And yet you see that it's exactly what he's talking about with orphans and widows not being polluted by the world, this hand-in-hand, living with integrity uh, and, uh, and have purpose for our lives. So let me back up a little bit and try to kind of give you the structure of this because I've been all over the place. Part of that was, in, in, uh, was with intention because I want to kind of show you maybe how a devotional time could even work. Just as you're thinking through a passage and listening and hearing and trying to make sense of it, just how that would, would really work. And how this doesn't require you to be some smart person or some well-researched or scholarly person. It just ha- ha- you have to get into the text and really begin to try to listen to it and ask honest questions about it. Really honest questions. Okay? In our, in our times of devotional with God, we've got to be able to ask the question, how is he speaking to me here? What wisdom is he giving me? How is this one more interaction for God to actually speak in? And this is no different, guys, than God speaking to me in the moment in a purposeful or profound time. It's just no different. It might be different in how it's presented, but it is no different. There is nothing at all more significant about God speaking something into my mind in a situation where I uh, you know, really needed it than there is in hearing these words from the Scripture spoken to me. Now, emotionally and relationally, sure, those things are great, but the problem is most folks don't get to that purposeful or profound hearing from God until the scripture is absolutely written on their hearts, because otherwise they wouldn't, they'd mistake it for all kinds of other messages, wouldn't hear God, wouldn't be able to confirm it. It just doesn't, doesn't work like that. That's not how maturity and completeness works. So we have no real hope of consistently hearing from God if we don't start with the practical uh, audio that we already have uh, here in the scripture. So what wisdom is he giving me in this passage? And then the second thing, what word of truth? Or how, let me, let me ask this question in a different way, because I think this could be more helpful in our quiet times. Uh, I hate using that word, because um, I'm not quiet usually. How can the word shape my perception today? How does this word shape my perception? If, if the goal of obedience and truth is to stop deluding myself into thinking I'm someone who, who isn't, the, you know, not the real person, or the reality around me I'm being deluded in, how does this shape, uh, uh, or how can this word shape my perception today? So I was thinking about applying this this week, and I really had trouble because as I was doing this prep work, I was trying to force myself to come up with some um, application for it. And it took uh, quite a while after I had already done this for God to uh, speak these words of application into my heart as I reflected it this week. And it was really clear to me that he was uh, telling me that uh, I have, and I have had this for a long time, so let's not pretend like this is something new, a just awful problem with being angry. I'm just angry a lot. Yeah, I'm angry a lot. A lot of the time I'm angry. Uh, if I'm honest, I seem really friendly. That's because I don't express myself very well. But I'm just angry. I have a lot of anger inside of me. Literally, as I was being humble this morning about how all these ways I was going to kind of like make up for some of the angry things I did this last week, I get in my car, which is wet, because I left the window down. I know. Get behind a white truck that is probably going negative five miles per hour (laughs) in my neighborhood, pass him, say a first choice words about his intellect, get on the road, driving. I, I have plenty of anger as I'm driving. 
spill my coffee as I'm coming in to uh, uh, here, forgot the laptop. I get, there's so many opportunities for me to get angry. And uh, as I was reading through this passage and thinking through it the week, I, this one word that kind of kept, not one word, but one phrase that kept coming uh, into my mind is, what do you gain from all that, that anger? What do you get from it? What, 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 what do you get? What practical, tangible benefit do you get? Because that's what he's saying in this passage here is uh, uh, man's anger does not bring about the righteous life that God desires. And that sounds like a kind of a, a you know, real spiritual way of saying that. Uh, but it basically just doesn't really get me much. I get a quick fix of being angry and giving someone back what I thought they gave me. It makes me more anxious, more angry. Uh, my anger is a huge problem in my life, and this feels like a new thing I'm learning, but I think probably it's just the same old thing I've learned and it's just come back to the top of my brain, is how little my anger really accomplishes anything. And, and at worst, how much devastation anger causes around me. In my relationships, in my mental health, my anger just isn't very productive. And I'm a really efficient person. I love being efficient. So why the heck am I angry all the time if it's so inefficient? If nothing else, I've got to start, stop being so angry so that I'm more efficient. Because, uh, you know, that's all that matters, right, is efficiency. So, um, how can this word, sh- uh, uh, word shape my perception today? You know, how can I see uh, today in my times of actually spending time thinking about this, how little effectiveness my anger actually brings? And how uncommon it is for me to have truly righteous anger? Well, one of my role models in this is Willie Hudspeth, uh, who has a lot more reasons for me to be angry, primarily because he's lived on this earth much longer than I have. And I've had multiple conversations where I've started out the conversation pretty angry, and he just kind of like brings it down. Uh, because it's like he's got this ability that I know God has given him in his wisdom of being able to look at these situations for what's going to be effective in this situation. This anger, this talk, this rhetoric, it's not going to work. But he's also someone who I've seen angry and angry at really righteous causes. And, uh, and that's really helped me too a lot in, uh, in kind of mentoring. But I just, I give you that because this is really what I was convicted of uh, just this week as I was reading through these passages. So what wisdom uh, is God giving me in this passage and do I believe he's actually going to speak it? And how can this word shape my perception today to make me live with purpose and live with integrity? I'm going to say a prayer, and uh, we'll uh, finish up here. Oh, I have a funny anecdote. Someone said I don't say a lot of anecdotes, but I feel like I do. I, uh, in my anger this week, but actually, I don't know if it was my anger. It could have been passive anger. Told one of my classes that they, uh, most, most likable, dumbest classes I've ever had. I'm just a mean person a lot of times, but I said it very, in what I thought was a likable way, and I really meant it. They're not a smart class. When they get together, they don't have preparation, their, their knowledge of things is just, and I try to kind of back up a little bit by saying, listen, I think it might be because you're a small class, maybe because you're a morning class, but you guys are just not very smart. And, uh, but I like you a lot, okay? That led to a really heated conversation. And one of my favorite lines from it was a gal named Kennedy, who I've learned a lot of interesting phrases from, mostly from rap songs. She quotes Yogati a lot. I think I've mentioned her. She sits on top of her desk, her name's Kennedy, and she just says, you know what? 
you are the meanest, nicest teacher we've ever had and the stupidest, most intelligent teacher we've ever had. And I was like, all right, I think I can go with that. That's pretty great. Put that right back in my face. But I will tell you that uh, that has definitely been the place for me that, that God has spoken most in terms of my anger because I have a lot of anger in my classes. Uh, so I'm learning. We'll see. We'll get there. If I can just bounce half and half and then we'll move from there. Um, Lord God, thank you for your word uh, that you have spoken to us and uh, for choosing to give us wisdom even though we don't deserve it. Um, I pray that you would speak in ways uh, this week to us that uh, we haven't really experienced through your word before, uh, that we can uh, just see how gracious and good you are, um, that you don't find fault with us, but that you are ready and willing to give in the name of uh, being a friend and showing us just how good you are. I really do, specifically for the people in here who have really not heard your voice in a way that... uh, uh, they could identify, would be able to hear your voice uh, through the word this week, something that you can speak directly to them, something that they will know comes from you. Um, Lord, we know you will deal with our doubts and our lack of understanding here, but that we pray that we would be faithful in, uh, in attempting to hear you speak. There's so much I know that you want to say to us in our generation, stuff that just gets lost. Um, help us to be better listeners to be consistent and committed to just hearing the good news that you have for us, the news that frees us from all this junk that holds us down, that will give us wisdom for the things coming ahead, that will put us at the forefront of what you are doing through your church and our nation and our world. Please, God, desperately ask that you would teach and train us to be mature and listening to you to you speak to us in the variety of ways that you do. Thank you so much for the best way that you've spoken to us in Jesus, that we could see who you are and what you want for us, that we can go back to him over and over and over again and see you at your core. And we thank you for uh, being a good God. We celebrate that now as we take communion. And uh, Lord, we just love you and thank you for that. Amen. Thanks for joining us for our sermon podcast. We would love for you to join us on Sunday morning or in one of our small groups during the week. And you can get more information about that at DentonNorthChurch.com.